and right now evil really is winning that's how i see it and it's it's very much like um middle earth i feel like middle i, th- I feel like we live in middle earth today and <clears throat> those of us who are doing these youtube channels and and you know passionate about this sort of thing and not not just the, those of us who have a a platform but even like the people in my comments section or the people on that I interact with with Twitter that don't have a ton of followers but have kind of a similar perspective as I do, the passion to save – essentially to save the world from evil, <laughs> which sounds super dramatic, but that's how I see it. It's like a great war, and we're fighting that war, and I do feel like some kind of – you know, some kind of a, a – a, a, I don't know, soldier in in, in, in a military – trying to fight against this onslaught, this force of evil that's trying to take over the culture. And, and if you're not a religious person, I'm a religious person, I'm a Christian, but not everybody is a very religious person. But even if you're not a religious person, think of it as, you know, the, the, you know working with nature, working with the natural hierarchies that exist, trying to create a system in which uh, we increase everybody's quality of life as opposed to fighting against that and trying to dominate people and trying to get your way and this sort of thing. And so I think that there is evil in the world, and I think that there are good people trying to make the world better, and I'm trying to be on that side. If I'm ever wrong about something, I'll, I'll try to fix it, but I'm trying to be on that side. And I do feel like it's a great battle and a great war, and it is. I do liken it to great works of fiction where the evil is sort of taking over. I think that we're that's the era that we live in. We live in the era that evil is winning and i think it's terrible and very yes, it is. but at least at what actually churchill said this not everyone loves churchill but he said that, that it's a great uh benefit or boon that we live in a time where we have a duty to perform during the war it's oh like, my gosh that's so true right it's, it's that's it's, so true that's where destiny comes from and that's why i was so glad to do what i'm doing because it, it came up right and i was happy to step aside and say i don't want to make propaganda i'm going to step into destiny I don't want to make propaganda yeah. for disgusting woke people and commercials because I, you know, directed commercials and worked in the industry. Right, right. Fuck that. I'd rather be this part of this destiny. Thank God we live in it. Well, you know, everyone who can participate in it anyway. And you, yeah. it, principalities form. You're a part of a principality. The audience comments that are below the thing, they're part of that principality. They're helping. Yeah. They're on Patreon. They're part of that, that movement. Today we're speaking with Chris Coles, Mr. Reagan. He's a political commentator, cultural commentator, and a very successful conservative YouTuber. We talk the power of male fraternity, the consequences of its loss, why they attack it, the gynocentric culture. And we look at all these things through the lens of the great movie Man Who Would Be King, which is star Sean Connery and uh, uh, Michael Caine. Let me introduce you to Brother Peachy Carnahan, which is him. And brother Daniel Dravert, which is I. The less said about our professions, the better. But we have been most things in our time. We've been all over India. We know her cities, her jungles, her jails, and her palaces. And we have decided that she isn't big enough for such as we. Yes, that's what I understood the commissioner to say. Therefore, we are going away to another place where a man isn't crowded and can come into his own. We're not little men. So we're going away to be kings. Kings of Kafiristan. Oh, Kafiristan. We hear they have two and thirty idols there. So we'll be the 33rd and 34th. It's a place of warring tribes, which is to say, a land of opportunity for such as we, who know how to train men and lead them into battle. We'll go there. We'll say to any chief we can find, do you want to vanquish your foes? 
Of course, he'll say, go to it. We'll fight for him, make him king, then we'll subvert that king. We'll seize his royal throne and loot the country four ways from Sunday. How's that for a plan? The biggest thing that I find is so beautiful about it is that idea of, um, this is man who would be king for people watching at home. Um, and obviously for anyone watching, you should go and watch this movie because it's excellent. Um, but it's this idea of male fraternity. And um, I think also for Americans, this really epitomized that borderlander spirit. Don't you think with these? Uh, oh, yeah. For the British Empire, that was the borderlands to go out to the empire and do that. But that it, it, I think it's epitomized really well in that line where they talk about going to the Kaibar Pass. He's like, a person hasn't been to the Kaibar Pass in a thousand years since Alexander, right? And then the Cockney guy goes, like, if a Greek can do it, we can effing do it, you know? Right. right? right. And that that's that whole American thing, though. In a way, that's yeah. that borderland. Yeah. And you've got Sean Connery, who is a Scot. And Scots, that's borderlands culture, right? Mm-hmm. And a Cockney is the same, too, because they're sort of, it's a class thing. But it's that rugged... To believe that you, and that's American, to believe that you can go out there and just do it. If Alex, mm. Alexander's a great king, but these nor- these guys are just normal guys and they go, we can do it. You know, that's that northern <laughs> spirit, you know? <laughs> well, I also think that there's a little bit, I mean, they were kind of trying to poke fun at the ignorance of this guy. You know, just sort of likening Alexander the Great to some kind of common Greek, right? And his little bit of um, nationalism or whatever is indicating that, well, you know, Brits are, are, are superior to Greeks. So if a Greek can do it, a Brit can do it, right? Not, you know, he's sort of making Alexander equivalent to himself in his culture, which obviously isn't. He's, you know, one of the great men of history. But uh, I, I think just poking fun at his ignorance a little bit as well. No white man has ever been there and come out since Alexander. Alexander who? Alexander the Great, king of Greece, about 300 years before Christ. Well, if a Greek can do it, we can do it. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm really happy you introduced me to this film. Oh, great. Because I'd mm-hmm. never even heard of it. And uh, I like Kipling. I think Kipling is a great author. Um, you know, obviously considered one of the greats. And and uh, it, it really is a, a a well-made production as well as a great story and really an epic story. Um, you know, there is some 70s-ness to it, which... At times, I did have to turn away from the the uh, the screen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, Which bit? In, in the first in, in the first battle, I think it's really the only real battle that we see that Sean Connery charges into battle, and he's shot with an arrow, and he survives this, and then they all think that he's a god, and that sort of like um, creates a lot of the you know the rest of the action of the film. But um, during that battle scene, they play this sort of like kooky almost funny music it's almost like a, it's almost like uh it's it's silly it's a little bit silly the music and they did this quite a bit in the 80s uh, in this sorry not the 80s the 1970s it, including the film the spy who loved me the spy who loved me they do something similar where they have some kind of silly music and bits and i really did I don't like this trend of the 70s and every time i see it in a movie i just ah uh, just you know <laughs> Yeah, right. It's funny how you yeah. have that um, interpretation of it. I, I felt that theme of the whole thing. I know the one you mean. It's a da 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 da. Yeah, da, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't know. That's wholesome to me because it's. I don't know. There's something about that final song that they sing at the end of it, 
Uh, yes. The sons of God go forth to war. Uh, a, a kingly crown to gain. That's different. That's a great moment. Yes. That's a great moment. I, I think if the battle scene music had had the same sort of melody, but but um, produced as a kind of like orchestral was, I, piece or something like that. I know what you mean, though. It is it, it's more lighter. It is lighter, and yeah. it's um, it could if you if it was done now, they would have done it in a, a bit less of a that sort of thing. But well, John Williams brought in this sort of epicness to movie scores, and that had existed in like the 1950s with you know these kind of like Ben Hur and movies like this. Um, but then in the 70s, they went for this sort of hokey, um, silly thing that this was kind of a fun uh, trend in the 1970s. And I don't think that that um, I don't think that that works. Uh, you know, it, it dates it. And I don't I don't think it works at all. Um, it's not like a timeless sort of thing. You want things to be timeless, right? Like a men's a man's suit is timeless. It's a timeless kind of apparel. This is very much a 70s trend that you can see in the movie, and it sort of takes you out of the film. At least for me, it took me out of the film. But other than the, than the silly music upon occasion, it's otherwise truly a masterpiece of cinema. And I'm really, uh, you know, as a student of cinema, you know, I studied film at school, at university. Uh, I'm thrilled that you introduced this to me. And there is this sort of um, brotherhood, this, uh, uh, com- you know, camaraderie of these two gentlemen even though they're criminals i mean the whole film is about two criminals right that's the story the kipling story is about these two criminals but they they do love each other as men they do love each other they're like brothers they're really like brothers and so in the end i don't you know spoiler alert this film is from i think 1975 so if you haven't seen it sorry but uh, in the end one of them dies and the other one is you can tell he is heartbroken to see his friend die to watch his friend die and uh and it, it's it's you know it's a touching moment it's really a touching moment you know i think that in our society now we say uh you know men don't show emotion or whatever and things like that and it's true we don't tend to show emotion but it's not that we don't feel emotion and i was touched by that moment and i thought it was a very good moment and pa- partially because and i think that's part of the reason you wanted me to come on here is to talk about the fact that we don't often have these moments anymore where we feel this great bond between men. It just doesn't doesn't exist anymore. So to see that in a film from the 1970s about the 19th century, I think is a, is a sort of refreshing, nice thing to see. Mm. And I think that emotion is best when it's withheld, right? Mm. That is that kind of stiff upper lip in a way. So you mm. see it, and you see it in, in, in their faces, but it's not blubbering. It's not performative no. like it's become with leftists. Because as we've seen with this, they have men come on Oprah. Oh, cry. It's okay to cry and blubber, right? That's like the dear leader. That's like the North Korean, oh, right? That's performative. But yeah. when you, a man with, with, withholds his emotion, it's okay for a man to have one solitary tear go down his cheek. That's <laughs> it. That's it. Other than that, I mean, it's too much, right? Because, because of I course, do that every night before bed. Yeah, one solitary tear, <laughs> a tear for the leftists that have all their <laughs> lives have destroyed themselves, right? Tear for them. That's right. And then one that's it. No sympathy that's otherwise. That's Bring it. in the military, right? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love it. I love right? it. Right, but yeah, it's it's deeply wholesome, right? Because mm. and I think they attack this. They attack this because men have been and groups of men have been. They're a revolutionary force. Right. For positive, though, that could be a conservative revolution yeah. in the sense they don't want the that's where the geist of things forms. That's where the for instance, I was thinking about this today when uh, when 
organized before this coming up to you and you see this with men's spaces being completely invaded where they say oh it's homosexual it's homosexual uh to to get together and to work out the gym to have mutual goals to like the company of men outside of of you know going after chicks or whatever but that is where think about a gym right if you can have a a hope this idea that it's homosexualizing that's creating sexual selection and it's sexual selection that ruins this this thing that forms between sports teams think about it like a male sports team if you bring in sexual selection think about it if it's a gay guy that's sexual selection so I, I, destroys I, I, define sexual selection quickly i don't really know what you mean by that well okay for instance when you bring a woman into a male group they're all they all suddenly start competing for the woman of course right the same yeah. and say so if you if you bring in homosexuals into a group that's the same thing that it's bringing in a eros oh, yeah. it's bringing in a desire to walk a different type of impulsion from within for people mm-hmm. in the group and even if it's just one person that's lusting after the other men that's not good because the actual think about it right a group of men the whole mood of it is about it's about the emergent that's the emergent guys the emergent what's a better word for that Sort of, there's a distributed cognition between a sports team that emerges, mm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's where why there's mascots in the sports team. That's this is you become one, a group towards a goal or something, right? right? right. Well, the, I I think of this as the concept of like philios, right? Like the brotherhood. Like I think to me that concept of 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 uh, one mind or everyone sort of working together for a common goal that becomes that sort of love of your brother. You're defending him, he's defending you, right? This is the, the warrior spirit, the warrior idea. Uh, and you're right, that can be disrupted. And in fact, in the film, in the film, they sign a contract saying that they swear off women until they achieve their exactly. goal. And I, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, what, a, what an amazing thing to do. Let me repeat, you're a pair of lunatics. Would a pair of lunatics draw up a contract like this? This contract between me and you, pursuing and witnessing in the name of God, amen, so forth. One, that you and me will settle this matter together, i.e. to be kings of Kafiristan. Two, that you and me will not, while this matter is being settled, look at any liquor, nor any woman, black, white or brown, so as to get mixed up with one or the other harmful. Three, that we conduct ourselves with dignity and discretion, and if one of us gets into trouble, the other one will stay by him, signed by you and me this day. There's no need for the last article, but uh, it's got a ring to it. Ah. Daniel? in the film to have these these two men write up a contract where they say we're not going to drink until we achieve our goal fine we're not and i i suppose this is in the kipling story originally and just the recognition that the attraction to a woman 
is disruptive to the male bonding or to the to the to the uh, uh, to the goal of the the men that are are trying to to achieve or whatever that that doesn't exist in our world anymore and i think that it should i used to i had a couple of friends one was an australian guy one was a german guy and uh, we used to hang out here in la together we'd go to like you know play pool or we'd do something and oftentimes we'd be out and i would see a girl that i found attractive and i was you know single so i would just go uh i'll be back guys and i would just disappear and i'd be gone for the rest of the night you know? <laughs> <laughs> And these guys would get so mad at me. Yeah. And you know what? Fair enough. It, it, it's 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 a it's a bit of a rude thing, right? I'm going and sort of doing my own thing, chasing my own desires, and I'm ignoring the gentleman that I went out with. And I have some degree of duty to them to you know to to spend the evening with these guys that that we've chosen to go out and hang out together. I mean, it wasn't the most important thing. We didn't have like an intense goal or anything like that. But it certainly is a disruptive thing when you have a group of men and there's a woman brought into it, uh, it's just going to destroy the whole, whatever you guys are doing, it's going to destroy it instantly. And we don't even think about that anymore. I don't think. Uh, and we need to, I think. Well, you see that with in this film as well as the, the Masonic thing. I mean, there's a sort of secret society and the, the Masons have lost all this, by the way, to dead fraternal organizations. Sorry, yeah. Masons out there, but they used to have, and you, and there's a book by a traditionalist thinker, Rene Guam. He explains all what the original, meaning of all the symbolism is right but this film represents these sort of secrets you have it's a bond it's like when people talk about bro code that's a sort of um uh a like a crudeness of what actually this thing is underneath right, yeah. and so that exists obviously it, it needs its outlet right that's why men's clubs are so great and women can have their own clubs we need men's clubs where it's yeah, it's, and even secret societies of it, right? Churchill, all these great men had dinner clubs where of men where they'd meet up and do their thing, and that's okay. It's a different force, and women can have the same thing, right? We're not going to solve our problems unless we let men gather together to solve these problems. This gynocentric class of middle managers—that's the worst thing to them. Do you think? <laughs> do you do you think that? Okay, I mean, I think this is true, but there's an active force trying to stop it. There's the gynocentric managerial class, yeah, right? Yeah. That's the worst thing to them because, and that's what solves the problem. This sort of WEF, this WEF, let's have the middle managers control everything. Let's not have, and you can see this in VC Capital with Elon yeah. Musk versus the old corporations. Mm -hmm. That's a masculine energy in, mm -hmm. in VC, which is, of course, right, is an entrepreneur that comes up that has a new idea, that's a very masculine thing to do. It's revolutionary to come and disrupt. There, the old class of, of Twitter, all these old companies, Twitter, whatever, it's the VC Peter Thiel types versus that managerial thing. And that's I, I would actually even, I would actually go so far as to say that there is a kind of communistic mindset in, uh, in America. It, it's this, this sort of Marxist idea of well, you know, everyone should get a say, and we'll have everybody, sit, you know, get, has a voice at the table, and all this kind of thing. Um, they're trying to develop that uh, egalitarianism, I guess, um, and and that I think is, I understand the goal for that. I understand the idea that you want everybody to feel valued, but many, most men, I would say, most men and most women, uh, especially, but but even most men 
need some structure. They need to be led. And so there's the military style structure of, you know, a company or an organization of any kind. And then there is the more Marxist structure, which is just everybody gets a say. And, and I tend to find that the military structure tends to work better in any organization I've ever been in. If you have a sort of top down structure, a hierarchy, um, people know their place, they know how to function, they know what to do. If you have um, a more of a Marxist idea where everybody's at least presented as equal, it's a bit of a mess. And, you know, obviously in terms of government, you will have people, you know, there was a power vacuum, somebody will step in and there will be an authoritarian dictatorship. So, you know, communist structures never really work, I don't think. It's either super unorganized and structure must be brought in, or somebody brings structure in, dominates, and absolutely just, uh, you know, dictates everything and becomes the the authoritarian. So, yeah, having at the beginning a solid structure, start, I would say like, military style structure to any organization i think is best and i think that that kind of uh, speaks to something about what you're saying about uh you know these these different impulses in the culture and trying to bring about this or that uh like uh, i i suppose in film they would call it mise-en-scene right like the feeling of the culture the culture or it's a horrible thing to say about culture because it doesn't really the metaphor doesn't work mise-en-scene but that, that's just like a feeling you get when you watch a film Oh yeah, yeah. As impressions of the zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think with communism, though, we, uh, that is gynocentric. It's a motherly. It's the terrible mother as an archetype. Exactly. It's, it's trying. Right. It wants yeah. to divvy out. It wants to divvy out resources evenly to all the different people. Whereas, mm -hmm. but there's nothing wrong though with hierarchy. There's nothing wrong with having a Chad King step up at some point, and that might be necessary, right? I mean, there are a lot of people talking about this at the moment, and I certainly think with England, it's. <laughs> It's that democracy, at least for the moment, has sort of, in a way, kind of served its purpose. And what we might need for a time, a Cromwell to come in. A Cromwell to, yeah. to, 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 you know, I know you're, you're probably not that authoritarian. I'm not, neither am I necessarily. No. But sometimes you need a Chad president to come in and start throwing out executive <laughs> orders and saying, we're suspending this for a certain time because yeah. the yeah. country's going to implode, right? Um, you know, hierarchy is not a bad thing. This whole idea of sort of decentralizing everything, yes, good to, to a certain degree. But if you have a Chad King, sometimes that guy can be the ultimate force to to have libertarians have their what they want is to have someone at the top because it does it won't work otherwise. But anyway. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And in, actually, in fact, uh, he, this is going to be probably the most provocative. Maybe it's not the most provocative thing I'm going to say today. We'll see. Who knows? There's lots of, <laughs> let's make it so much worse than this. Let's get crazy. Let's get crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that giving women the vote was a disaster. Mm. I think it was a disaster. And here's why people will say, Oh, but women deserve a vote. I don't disagree with that. I think women can be very intelligent. Obviously, you know, <laughs> I respect women. I'm not a misogynist or anything like the left would like to pretend that I am. Uh, but this is why giving women a vote was a, a disaster. Women tend to be, in my experience, people will probably disagree with this. Some people will disagree with it. Women tend to be more uh, driven by emotion than men. Men tend to be driven more by uh, reason and facts and sort of thing. It's not to say that all women are like that. But <clears throat> when you have somebody who's driven by emotion, what happens is you can manipulate them with stories, right? So you could tell somebody a story that's a particular, like, so if we're talking about immigration, I don't. If I give you statistics, you'll say, okay, these statistics look bad. We should adjust immigration in this way. But if I gave a woman the statistics, you know, she might say exactly the same thing. Okay, this looks bad, whatever. But then if I showed you a movie of 
an immigrant family struggling to make it over the border, right? And, you know, maybe the, one of the children dies and they finally make it over and they send money back to um, their families and sort of thing. You might say, you might say, well, I'm very sympathetic to that family. I feel bad for them. Emotionally, I'm affected by this film. But I looked at the statistics and a lot of the people that are coming over the border are, you know, running drugs, they're murderers. Uh, a lot of the women that try to come across the border are, you know, abused by these cartels and all this sort of thing. And, and the cartels are making more money and becoming more powerful, uh, you know, these criminal organizations. And therefore, the statistics show me that we should not have an open border policy and we shouldn't and we should make sure that we send all the immigrants back, because even though some of them do suffer and some of them are well-intentioned and are good people, uh, if you continue to allow immigrants to come across, you'll have more and more and more. And that, of course, creates opportunities for these cartels and drug running and all this sort of thing. So we want to eliminate all that bad stuff. So we must have strict border enforcement. But the woman might watch the same video and say, ah, okay, we have to open the borders. We cannot allow these families to suffer. Just because I showed her that movie, just because I told her that story of the suffering of these people, women are very sympathetic. They're very empathetic. And that is in their nature, and that's a good thing. But this also allows them to be more easily manipulated by storytelling. And you you have to, it, you know, a lot of people are going to think that's misogynistic. I just think it's true. Um, and it's and it's an unfortunate truth, but some truths in reality are are unfortunate. And so to me, that was a huge problem. And we're living with the consequences of that today. And I don't think that conservatives, Republicans, those who care about the truth of the world, I don't think we care that much about telling stories. And the reason we don't care enough about telling stories is because in you know it's just rational to say okay if something is true I don't need to develop some like you know uh, complicated way to try to explain it to you to try to convince you of it. I just tell you the truth and you believe it. However, if I'm going to lie to you or I'm going to try to convince you of something that you might otherwise not believe because it's, you know, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's in my best interest and maybe not the best interest of everyone. I'm going to have to develop some kind of a story. I'm going to try to have to convince you, right? So the left, who I believe lies to people all the time, it's just like their whole platform is just lying, has become over the decades incredibly good at storytelling, incredibly good at manipulating the public. And so I think it's this shift toward, uh, you know, the, the the ideas of the feminine, the ideas of women that have come to the surface. Men have all sort of just like uh, given power to women in our society and said, "Okay, we'll do what you want." Um, and I do think that that happens naturally in families. You know, when you know when a, a wife is crying and upset, a husband will say, "Okay, whatever you want, honey." And then we've done that, but we, we've done that with the entirety of society. And I think that this has been a terrible mistake, and we're going down a terrible uh, path right now. At least in America, I think so. And it goes to show you've had David, you made a video about David Mamet when he went on Daily Wire. And he's obviously completely wrong about this idea that story <laughs> doesn't have an effect on culture. It's just, no. <laughs> and I think this is some sort of holdover from when he was uh, defending violence in movies back when he was a liberal. So you know how Quentin Tarantino used to get questioned about his violence in movies and such? I think it's a whole yeah, no, from that. Because ultimately, and I think ultimately, of course, story is affects everyone. Of course, someone who is uh, the traits of, of females, that affects them more. But that, the importance of culture, obviously, of course, uh, it's downstream from, uh, politics is downstream from culture. Uh, who was it that said that? Breitbart. Breitbart said that. That's very true. There's, a, there's a, an academic agent said that uh, culture is downstream from law, which is kind of true as well. 
But ultimately, beneath all that, in our value hierarchy, it's what's true on the ground, right? So if you have a false story, mm-hmm. then someone tries to enact that in reality. That's inefficient in the sense that they're going to – that makes the whole if – even if you want to think about this economically. So you imitate the procedures of the hero – which is false, right? Say it's a woke movie, a Disney woke movie. It's false to reality. You're going to take those procedures in reality after you've seen it. What happens? It fails. So that means that's going to affect the lives of every person that watches that. So it's such a degenerative effect on culture mm-hmm. over time if you do stuff like that, right? But what it does mean for people that are in these uh, reactionary and conservative and, and uh, new right spaces, traditionalist spaces, it's an opportunity for us. You're, and you're a storyteller. It's a great opportunity because people in their droves are fleeing from these woke movies looking for the genuine value hierarchy. It's equalizing what they gain in production value. They lose uh, in, in the values. So yeah, actually, it's making I'm trying, it easier. I'm doing a new I'm doing a new channel called Alpha Critic in which I, yeah. in which I review films. And one thing that has come to my uh, – so, so an epiphany that I've had about why, why do we hate – these woke movies so much, right? Why don't we just ignore them? Uh, and I think that the reason we hate it so much is not, not just that they're taking projects like Star Wars and things that we loved as children and they're destroying them. And like Willow, I loved the movie Willow when I was yeah. a kid and that, you know, now they're ruining it with this show. Um, but even more so, like even original content, even stuff that they're producing that, um, that like you said, they, the production value is so good now that I think that it's a tragedy. It's like, giving it's like giving somebody a million dollars and watching them burn it yeah <laughs> you know you you, you like you have yeah. all this amazing technology you can you can produce some of the most amazing films ever in the yeah. history of the world the cinematography is beautiful the special effects are great uh the you know the acting's not as good probably as it used to be but you know you could probably ratchet it up there if you hired the right people and it's like you could produce masterpieces of cinema you have the opportunity you have the tools you can do it but they choose not to. Instead, they choose to produce woke garbage. And it's such a, a, a travesty. Those of us who love good storytelling and love good cinema and, and, and love these things, uh, you know, I grew up really wanting to be a writer, a, a, a writer of fiction, a writer of films, a movie director. That's what I wanted to do. And so when I see those people given the opportunity to do what I wanted to do, and I was never given the opportunities to do those things, uh, to me, it's like personally insulting. <laughs> it's personally insulting because I, I, I believe that I can produce something that the, the world would love and I'm just really not given those opportunities and the people who are are wasting them. And then just as a consumer, as a person who just loves to be told a good story and enjoy a good film, I'm not really given good films anymore. I'm not, I did a review of this um, project called uh, The Guardian to the Galaxy Holiday Special and I can say I was shocked at how good it was. And the reason I was shocked at how good it was is because there just isn't anything good made being made anymore. Not nothing at all. I think in like the probably the eighties or the nineties, if that project had been made, it would have been kind of mediocre. Or I, I think it would have been good, but I don't think it would have been. I would have been as shocked at how good it was as I was when I watched it today. You know, you have to watch things from like the early two thousands, like TV shows from the early two thousands, if you want to watch a good show anymore. You have to just like watch an old show because nothing comes out good anymore, really, I don't think. Yes, I think series like The Wire 
back in 2000. I mean, my God, the, the excellent television. Yep. But I do think there always was a kind of neoliberal bias. It was more so than the Farris before. It was oh, more of course. Even in, the, even in the 80s, you, you watch 80s films and you'll be like, oh, this film's awesome. It's very like sort of hardcore conservative. Yeah. And then you can see like underlying tones of leftism. <laughs> yeah, it's there. It is there anyway. So in a way, and this is what I talk about, what, as I say, it is, it's better some, in some ways to have the sledgehammer. Because then people of our side realize, because haven't they realized, oh, this is propaganda, right? Mm-hmm. And that's good because before, think about it. People usually go, uh, oh, well, Netflix still makes movies. It entertains me. Even though I'm conservative, I'm still going to pay the money, don't they? NFL, I'm still going to watch yeah. the NFL, even if they're woke. Because uh, people are lazy. So the, the, the more they raise yeah. the sledgehammer, then they go, no, actually, instead, I'm going to subscribe to... Uh, I'm going to subscribe to uh, Mr. Reagan's new streaming service. Right, right, right. right. No, the- I, I actually think that this is a problem no. with the show Yellowstone. This is going to be an unpopular position. No, you're right. But I, my Go father on. loves the show. My father loves the show Yellowstone. But I watch it with him when I, you know, I went up for Christmas. I watched a few episodes. And I feel like as a writer, I can kind of tell who what the writers are like. And what I imagine the writers are in, in Hollywood writing Yellowstone is a bunch of leftists going, all right, what do conservatives want to see? They want to see cowboys. These are the kind they want to see him own some kind of like protest or some feminist protest or we'll have him own a protester, but we can't make it a position, but they don't really understand conservative ideas. So they can't present it in a naturalistic way. And I can see what they're doing. And I just think, yeah, I mean, you're kind of giving candy out to conservatives, uh, you know, but actually it's really like, you know, a little bit of like leftist poison with a candy coating. And, uh, and it really, sickens me but here's the thing about that the i think oftentimes they have to make the poison so weak that it's ineffective so so a lot of like the leftism in yellowstone i think goes unnoticed and it doesn't affect the culture in any way Mm. uh maybe it does Mm. a little bit i mean i haven't seen the whole series i've only seen a few episodes but i I do think that about like 80s films if you can find some kind of leftist undercurrents in 80s films a lot of times nobody even remembers that stuff Mm. Yeah, I, I think if it is quite, so, you can watch uh, Commando, Arnold Schwarzenegger Commando. Even if there's something in that that might be some co- offshoot comment, then yeah, yeah I suppose it doesn't even like notice it. But the overarching <laughs> stuff, though, the overarching sort of yeah. does have an effect. I, I think with Yellowstone, I, I agree with you. It does have. I think it, they were sort of weak libertarians, the people that that, that are the right. I know some guys that know him but you can see in it that okay and this is a trick they often use they start with the first season right no diversity casting oh okay and then you get to season two suddenly there's two new black cowboys you know what's going on here there's nothing wrong with a black dude or whatever but it's just are there really in this place in yellowstone (laughs) come on um, there might be some. I'm sure there probably are, but <laughs> no. You, general... It just indicates the priorities of the writers and the producers. They're trying to put as much woke stuff as they can in without tipping their hat. You know, tipping their hat, tipping their hand. Um, I think the Paramount uh, guy, the CEO, actually said, "Oh, uh, Elon Musk, how good is this? This he's a hero, and oh, we're not going to wokeify." But dude, they're pressuring you, and they you are over time anyway. I said this exact yeah. thing about Yellowstone. I said, "Don't think this is a savior." Don't think. No, Just wait. No. And then season two came, and the other Paramount series, same thing. I've seen some other Paramount things being released that have been wokeified anyway. One CEO can't 
fix a company that's overrun by by these groups that are in HR and all that. It's just not happening. No, I mean, I think that there's still suppression going on on in Twitter. I think Elon Musk hasn't really eradicated the problem. You know, I, yeah. I've been suspended twice on Twitter nice. since, Already. since since Elon Musk took over. Well, I'd never I'd never had my account suspended ever before. And then I had it suspended twice. And the funny thing is, I didn't actually break any rules. I didn't do anything. The, the first time I was suspended, I think I said something like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, somebody, there was somebody who was a, a Pete Buttigieg supporter, like a big Pete. There was a, a, a Twitter page that was essentially a fan page for Pete Buttigieg. And I, and I said, look, everybody, this person's a fan of Pete Buttigieg. I didn't know Pete Buttigieg fans existed. This is crazy. This is hilarious, right? I got suspended for targeted harassment for pointing out that somebody was a Pete Buttigieg fan. <laughs> I just thought, I literally thought it was fascinating. I, I thought, is this a real person? How could this be possible? And then the next time somebody, somebody posted this picture of this guy or a video of a guy that had robbed somebody in broad daylight, just robbed this poor old man. And I said, this guy deserves a beat down, right? Which, you know, we often say things that are, you know, like to me, that's a kind of a justice. That's kind of justice. This this guy's a criminal. You can't see his face. It's completely covered. And again, targeted harassment of somebody. And, and, and they sent me this letter that was like, we want people to feel safe expressing themselves on Twitter. And I'm like, I don't think this guy is trying to express himself on Twitter. He's just trying to rob some old man like... I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not making anyone feel like their lives are in danger. I don't even know who this guy is. I don't think anybody does. He's just some like common thief. It's fine if I say he deserves a beatdown. That's just a, a sentiment. That's like, in some ways, it's like a political idea, right, of justice. Uh, but it's too masculine for them, probably. Yeah, well, I think they a lot of people on the dissident right, what they do is they sort of encode, you know, they they always avoid any type of violent language on their Twitter accounts, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they or, or they use sort of numbers to encode what it is, you know. And that, even with stuff like you just said, this just gets detected by the AI, and so that's the way around. I, it. But I challenge it. Yeah. And then somebody lo re looks at it and goes, "Nope, that's definitely." You know, it's funny. Like we use language like that in real life all the time. I watch this show from Australia called Beauty and the Geek. If you haven't seen this show, watch the show. Amazing. I love nerds. I, I love watching them succeed. And it's a great show. And it's one girl. They, they have this competition. They have to do something. And the, and the guy does something stupid. And the girl goes, I'm going to kill him. You know? And I, and I thought, it's funny that we use language like that in real life. Like when you're growing up with your sister, it's like, I'm going to kill you. Are you really going to kill your sister? Of course, you're not going to kill her. But, the, but that's the language that we use in real life. We, we uh, exaggerate. We use this kind of hyperbole and this exaggerated language. But on Twitter, if you do that, they're like, that's a, that's a legitimate threat. To my, mm. I've been, my life has been threatened. It's like, yeah. no, it hasn't. No. Relax, you know. Well, I think that's in many ways, it makes me wonder whether this Twitter thing is a good thing. Because there was a parallel economy starting to develop. There was a parallel Twitter emerging. There's Gab and all that sort of thing, obviously. Mm, you New think Elon Musk taking over ruined that? Maybe. It, or, or it may. It depends what happens. Because there's a lot of guys on our side that have not been brought back yet. There's heaps of them. You, know, you might not know. I, I, them, I'm not aware Morgoth, of all that stuff. Yeah. But there's a lot of guys on our side that just don't have their accounts back yet. It's well, like, only the most so popular ones. Guys that you follow and things like that. Well, yeah. I mean, people that had a, Tommy Robinson doesn't have his account back yet. Ah, yeah, right, right, right. You know? Oh, yeah, actually, um, what's that guy's name? He, he has, um, yeah, there are people who are not brought back yet. And 
I don't really understand that because for me, like, I, I don't understand why Kanye was was taken off, right? Because I, I do recognize, actually, I will say this. I don't really recognize white racism in America. I don't think it's a thing. But I do think that anti-Semitism exists. And the reason I think that is because I once went on Stormfront, this like a white supremacist website, to see what they were saying about Trump. Because everybody was like, oh, Trump is, uh, you know, the white supremacists, they love Trump. They love Trump. So I was like, well, let's go to the source. Let's find out. So I go to the Stormfront site. And almost all the conversations was about how Amer- like America and the world is run by Jewish people. And Jews are evil and all this kind of stuff. So I thought, okay, so there is some anti-Semitism. But, you know, so I understand that that is a legitimate thing that some people believe. And so I can understand there being a concern about that. But you can't, you have to be able to expose all the ideas for people to understand what the truth of the world is. You can't just like, and I don't think that Kanye is anti-Semitic. Maybe he is, I don't know. But let him express his ideas. And I think the reason they got banned was for some like uh, swastika that he posted or something like that. Well, which but... is just a, it's just a, it's just a meme, right? And actually, the priest and what he's saying overall is just Christ is love everyone, right? That's sure. what he's saying because even the worst villains or whatever. But I think God, it's you're allowed to criticize another culture. You're allowed to criticize other. <laughs> well, religions. I will tell you, I will tell you this. I'm German, like genetically, like my ancestry is German, and. You know, a lot of people don't like the Germans. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> for, what's the problem? For a variety of, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Which I have a... an, I have Scottish ancestry, and I will say that uh, you know the English oppressed the Scots. This is like a well-known thing. If you see Braveheart or you know, you know, there's all these historical movies about these conflicts that they had. Uh, you it know, was both ways. It was both ways. I think in the reality I think right. of the history, think... it was they they would raid across the border. They sure, there, there was things. an antagonistic. We we the Scottish were essentially barbarians. I'm half <laughs> and I'm half Scot. Right? I'm half. Let's Celt, be honest. So... Yeah, exactly. Right. So and and the, and yeah. during the Roman times, the Germans were were barbarians, right? Yeah. And the Romans were trying to take over Germany, and and the Germans fought back, and they were never really invaded by the Romans like the rest of Europe. But uh, there was that antagonism. Now, do I go, oh, I hate Romans. I hate Italians because of this historical conflict. No. Do I say I hate English people because of this historical conflict? No. History is messy. History is divisive. And But you got to leave it where it is and just, you know, look at society as it is to, today. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. People, I, I don't. Pe- people do need to be allowed to say, oh, this particular cultural religion has a particular cultural problem. Right. So absolutely. I mean, I look so at that's why American, I'm saying, OK, even if I it look is at my own culture and I say this is what we're doing right now. In fact, what mm. we're doing right now is we're essentially criticizing white European culture as it exists today. That's what we're that's what primarily we're criticizing. Right. Um, but if we were to do a, a show, if this was like a very, very high profile show and we we're criticizing black culture, we'd be called racist. Uh, but that's silly. We 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 have uh, working brains. We should be able to identify problems in a culture and discuss them. And I do that on my show, somewhat to be provocative, but also because I think that this needs to become normalized, the ability for anyone to discuss anything about any culture. And for Kanye to bring those sorts of things up, uh, you know, if, if I'm to say, okay, actually, you know, Jewish people are a diverse group of people. Some of them are good people. Some of them are bad people and whatever. And we come to that conclusion which I think is true, uh, then we need somebody to have an opposing position for for that conversation to to exist. And there are people out there who are anti-Semitic. And if they don't have a voice at all, then there's no opposition to that voice because I'm not 
I'm not going to be responding to anti-Semitism if no anti-Semitism is expressed. So you need somebody like Kanye to be out there saying these things. I don't think he's an anti-Semite. Maybe he is. But uh, you need these uh, expressions to be out there so that the discussion can be had, so that people can see it and people can make up their minds for themselves. This this idea that we're never allowed to say anything nasty about anyone ever um, is just going to allow people to exist and sing their sort of – uh, seething in in hatred without really thinking through their thoughts, you know what I mean? We need to yeah, have these of course. Open it debates. Need, it needs to be expressed, and uh, I think the fact that I've never loved that word anti-Semitism because it's sort of like a unique word for one particular culture, right? It's yeah. like, well, hang on, what about the anti uh, Anglo-Saxonness, right? That's another thing. Can we have a yes. word for that as well? Because well, that definitely say, exists, okay, right? Didn't that this, Marjorie this Taylor Green brought out? She brought out that Anglo-Saxon thing and, and instantly got. Oh, she mentioned Anglo-Saxon. It's a bad word, but that is the fundamental wow. soul of America. And then suddenly... Oh, oh, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I'll say another hyper-provocative uh, uh, thing. I, I, Ashkenazi Jews, I read this article, Ashkenazi Jews, genetically, they've done a genetic study. They're mostly German. I, I think they're almost... I think most Ashkenazi Jews are entirely German, actually, ge- on a genetic level. And so there's this idea that, uh, you know, anti-semitism is is a sort of a racial thing and and it is in the minds of people who do think that jews are a different race but in actual fact i think they're just germans mm. well it's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a, a well i see the, i just think religion right but of course it gets right. conflated this is complicated these are complicated issues yeah. but i think again back on that point of of a dissident a dissident culture emerging and an opportunity. I mean, you've written a book of short of short stories, right? I think, <laughs> That's true. and you know, and it's got great reviews on uh, on on Amazon. And um, does it? The, I need to take it off Amazon. I haven't. I never <coughs> copy but, edit it, so it's all full of typos. And I just put it out there for fun once, and I forgot to take it off. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> but the point is, there are things emerging. There's the passage prize, which is on the dissident side of things, which is it's all young. You can be anonymous too. You're young dissident on the right wing writers, and there's like twenty thousand dollars worth of prizes for this it's fiction, nonfiction. Oh, I should, I should try that out. That's fun. Well, I'll, I'll show you that. I'll send you some links to it. But there is a, a emergent uh, structure, and I mean, this is something. I mean, your best stuff I love is the comedy stuff, the stuff where you do more of a uh, mm-hmm. less not necessarily less political but more uh bring in the film craft of it sort of like fiction yeah. in a way like you do, you've done the uh, poetic thoughts of uh of uh, mr regan right you know <laughs> right. the one where you do that and you're doing that's a certain right. tone of yeah. thing right and so that's more of the stuff we need because we need the fuel we need the fire to survive other people are tip of the spear think about project veritas they're the tip of the spear right so in some ways you're a tip of the spear because it's political but we need this thing underneath and we have the culture because we are, you know, nationalists. We have the folk culture. Mm-hmm. The leftists don't. They don't have that. So if we don't uh, <clears throat> champion this, this culture underneath poetry, whatever it is, verse, story, our authentic folk culture. And there's, there's many instances in America. It was actually in the Appalachian Mountains that a lot of the English folk tradition was saved in America, right? Mm-hmm. These regional cultures that are in America. So... If we can look into that and do more of that, um, I think... Can, can I express what I believe is at the core of all of this discussion mm. that we're having? Yeah, of course. <laughs> no, go on. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm planning to do a video on this, actually. And maybe maybe I won't. I'll just express it here, and then we, we won't have to do a full video. But I, I think I will. And I, I really think at the core of the culture war that we're having, and it really is a war. I see it as a war, 
is evil, right? It's really good versus evil. And I think that traditional Christian European values are good, right? What is the essence of a man? It is being strong, but also being kind, being uh, being able to defend oneself and one's family, but also being wise and thoughtful and rational. And, th- th- you know, that's why we cut, we hide our emotions. It's not because we are, uh, you know, trying to look a certain way, although that that's true too, but it's really so that we, it, it's a, it's a way of us controlling ourselves and not like women want you to control your emotions, uh, you know, or want you to be able to release your emotions and like, Oh, have a cry. But it's like, if men just release their emotions all the time, we'd always be fighting all the time. We are naturally violent people. Yeah, but also they leave you because they would go, oh, what they say they want, they don't uh, instinctually want. Bye-bye. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, But but I digress. The the point I'm trying to make here is that there are sort of natural ways that human beings are, and we've developed ways in order to deal with our natural instincts and our natural inclinations. And I think that's, uh, to some degree, the, the, well, not to some degree, I think that the, the traditional European Christian ethic works perfectly with human nature and allows us to have a society that I think functions perfectly well. And <clears throat> whatever, you know, however that, uh, you know, society is organized. Um, but we have this opposition to everything natural and everything good. And I consider that to be evil. And I actually think that that side is starting to win. And when I was a, a boy in the eighties, that side was not winning. There was more of a balance, right? It was sort of like, uh, you know, you know, in star Wars, they say, bring balance to the force, right? There's always going to be evil, but you need enough good in the world to be able to combat that evil. And right now, evil really is winning. That's how I see it. And it's it's very much like um, Middle Earth. I feel like Middle I, th- I feel like we live in Middle Earth today. And <clears throat> those of us who are doing these YouTube channels and and you know passionate about this sort of thing, and not not just the, those of us who have a, a platform, but even like the people in my comment section or the people on that I interact with with Twitter that don't have a ton of followers but have kind of a similar perspective as I do, the passion to save, essentially to save the world from evil, (laughs) which sounds super dramatic, but that's how I see it. It's like a great war and we're fighting that war. And I do feel like some kind of, you know, some kind of a, 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 I don't know, soldier in, 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 in a military trying to fight against this onslaught, this force of evil that's trying to take over the culture and and if you're not a religious person i'm a religious person i'm a christian but not everybody is a very religious person but even if you're not a religious person think of it as you know that you know working with nature working with the natural hierarchies that exist trying to create a system in which uh we increase everybody's quality of life as opposed to fighting against that and trying to dominate people and trying to get your way and this sort of thing and so I think that there is evil in the world, and I think that there are good people trying to make the world better, and I'm trying to be on that side. If I'm ever wrong about something, I'll, I'll try to fix it, but I'm trying to be on that side. And I do feel like it's a great battle and a great war, and it is. I do liken it to great works of fiction where the evil is sort of taking over. I think that we're that's the era that we live in. We live in the era that evil is winning, and I think it's terrible. And very yes, sad. it is. But at least, at, well, actually Churchill said this, not everyone loves Churchill, but he said that, that it's a great uh, benefit or boon that we live in a time where we have a duty to perform during the war. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so true. Right? It's, it's, that's it's so true. That's where destiny comes from. And that's why I was so glad to do what I'm doing because it, it came up, right? And I was happy to step aside and say, I don't want to make propaganda. I'm going to step into destiny. I don't want to make propaganda yeah. for disgusting woke people and commercials because I, you know, directed commercials and worked in the industry. Right, right. Fuck that. I'd rather be this part of this destiny. Thank God we live in it. Well, you know, everyone who can participate in it anyway. And you, yeah. it, principalities form. You're a part of a principality. The audience comments that are below the thing, they're part of that principality. They're helping. Yeah. They're on Patreon. They're part of that, that movement of it. And I think also you mentioned uh, America and the, the soul of it. I think it is important to know that it, America is a people. You can have, you can get yeah. into that old Anglo-Saxon soul. But the problem is it's just been cast out and, oh, it's this, it's that, it's pan-European. But you know the the founding fathers all called themselves Englishmen before the revolution. It's it's yeah. it's just a way of being, and we see with the court system, we see that the jury system doesn't work unless you all are all of a certain type of soul, because yeah. your yeah. understanding of what freedom is, what guilty is, what all this stuff, Black Lives Matter. Suddenly, they're not prosecuting people who are obviously guilty because they don't believe in it. What well, one thing that was really beautiful about the film that that we watched. Um, the man who would be king is that there, there was this very strong attachment to the, their culture, right? The British empire and, and this, this culture. And part of this evil that's taking over the world, I think, or taking over America anyway, is a deletion of culture. It's an eradication of culture. And that, that's something that I think leads men to be lost in society. Um, if you don't have a strong culture with good values, um, then and, – and I do think that there is an opposition to this. Because there is such a strong push against this evil, there is a great strong push – or a, 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 a great uh, – sorry, a great push for the, the, the world to, like, lose culture, America to lose culture, a great push of evil against us. There is a great pushback as well. But it's it's tough because, you know, we you know, we think of masculinity as, like, you know – having um wearing a flannel shirt and uh growing a beard and chopping wood and owning a truck and things like this and i think that that's terrible because you know even though yes that is part of what masculinity is that's one way of expressing it you can also wear a suit and tie and you know to me uh, uh masculinity is like we've been kind of getting at during this conversation it's about protecting the family and, and being strong and you know you know being great at what you do and all that sort of thing and making money for the family and supporting your kids and all that sort of thing. But it's also about doing the right thing and having a sense of duty and being a good man, not just being a strong man, but being a good man. And to me, that's what hiding, like what I was saying earlier, that's what hiding emotion is about. And I think that it's difficult for us to find that balance of having duty and being kind and all that sort of stuff and pairing that with our natural instincts to be strong and violent and stuff. Like if, I, if I'm working out, I want to lift weights. I don't want to do cardio. But I know if I want to stay fit, if I want to stay fit and have a good heart, low body fat, look decent, I have to do cardio, you know, <laughs> but I don't want to. To me, I see the cardio as feminine. And that's silly. I shouldn't, you know, but that's how I feel about it. So we do have to strike this balance. And it's very hard when you have these leftists and what I would consider evil trying to feminize men so much. When, when the left is trying to feminize us, it's much harder to strike the balance that we need in our lives of strength and gentility which I think is really critical to being a great man. 
And right now, I think most of the push against evil and the push against the left is like, I'm going to go get a farmhouse and I'm going to get some wood and I'm going to chop it with an axe and I'm going to grow up, you know, I'm going to like be a man, you know. It's like, well, that's one way of doing it. But I think striking the balance is more important. And it's hard to do when you have everybody going, you know, do you really like women or do you kind of like both? You know? <laughs> well, that's the thing, though, isn't it, is that there is this urge in American culture to say, oh, it's rugged individualism. But that's just never been the right. case. We've always been part of communities, always been part of towns. And a lot of what you're saying, that was what religion provided. Yeah. All these folk yeah. traditions, all these right is that you had the village even the puritans had their village they had you know the tavern these things were brought over from and there's a great book called the seed of albion which shows all the culture and the different regions of england how they're brought over in the different folk of the different regions i think a lot of confusion with american culture people think you say you get a borderlander and he compares himself to a southern fairy in london right. and thinks those brits aren't like us Right? right? But that's like right. comparing, that's like a northern Englishman saying, ah, he says the same thing. He feels yeah, the no, same way true, as yeah. the Appalachian does. And the Appalachian is exactly like the northern Englishman. If he just goes to Yorkshire, he'll, or he'll, he goes to Northumbria, he'll say, oh, these people, and I've got people in my comments section lit that light up and say, yes, 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 yes. I've been there. Appalachian, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that, that cop, context is so important with religion but also how folk and how it goes up to the church that's so important i think that's really lost in this idea of multiculturalism that's pushed on america which just isn't true and isn't true anywhere but how folk multiculturalism is the worst experiment ever inflicted on man even I mean, melting pot is, i think ideas. feminism and, and marxism is probably worse ah the melting pot's not good either it's just not you know, right it's, I, it's just not true I to once, be it. go go sorry when, when i was a kid when i was a kid it was just like they didn't mind separating us into boys and girls. I don't think they do that as much anymore. I don't know. I don't have children of my own. I have nieces and nephews. But um, when I was a kid, it was like the boys and the girls. And I lived in Oregon. So it was just white boys and white girls, essentially. Right? I mean, that was like the experience that I had in my life. And then that kind of got lost, right? I moved out of Oregon and I was living in Miami and New York and London and, and Los Angeles and stuff. And it's very multicultural and it was very mixed uh, in terms of gender, everybody was, you know, it was like men and women together in every kind of context you could imagine. Uh, and, uh, you know, straight people, gay people, like everybody was mixed all the time, always, right? Like you, every TV show that you see, every movie that you see, it's always mixed. doesn't matter if it's happening in like ninth century England, there's got to be black people. And it's like, what are you talking about? You know, they, they, they force this kind of integration in every aspect of our lives now. And if you don't, if you have any kind of problem with it, you're a racist, you're a misogynist, whatever it is. But I did a film. I did it. I think I don't remember. I think it was a movie um, where I was doing background acting. This is several years back. And it was some kind of like World War II thing. And almost every one that was in my scene, because it was a World War II film in which we were, I, I don't remember exactly what we were doing, but um, it was all almost all white men. It was almost all white men. It was a little bit mixed, but for the most part, it was almost all white men. And it was it like you could it was palpable you could feel what this environment was and it was not like anything i had felt since i was a child this sort of like uh the energy that existed in that group was very specific and very powerful and you could you could imagine that if you could somehow get that group of culturally uh similar people together for a common cause you could see how that would be very effective 
but trying to bring in people from lots of different cultures, lots of different backgrounds, you know, d- different genders, different, you know, natural inclinations, different cultural inclinations together for a common cause. It's not going to work. It's not going to work in the same way, right? That, that, um, that similarity, that common background, that common culture, uh, that to me is actually a very powerful thing. And it's something that I think isn't, you know, you don't, it's not racist to say, oh, this, this somehow works better as a group than like, you know, bring, you know, this sort of cultural, you know, bringing, bringing everybody together, this mix, mixing of everybody. If it works better, it works better. That's just the reality of the situation. And maybe you don't like that. Maybe you don't want the, the, the uh, society to be like that. But maybe it does work better that way. And I think that we should talk about those things and have those questions, but we're not allowed to. That's even, it's verboten even to talk about the possibility of, of, a, of a group that is culturally and, uh, and racially um, homogenous. You know, it's just like you're not even allowed to talk about that. And I think that's really, really sad because of little experiences that I had like that in my life where I go, I remember this. I remember what it's like to be part of a group that everybody's kind of the same, kind of similar. And it's interesting. It's fun. And you know who gets to experience that every day? leftists because leftists (laughs) control the media they control basically they can go to work they can get up in the morning and they can go to bed at night and never have interacted with a uh, with a conservative because Mm. they control the music they control tv and film and they control corporations so you're not even allowed to express conservative ideas but in the 50s it was i think it was probably the opposite if you wanted to express a marxist idea you were shunned and everybody kind of had a similar uh, idea about the world and and there was a kind of homogeny uh and and it is a luxury today you, you don't really get it you do it you get it if you're a leftist but you don't really get it so much if you're conservative and i don't know how i don't know how you could possibly go back to a world like that i don't know you might have to like find a village in alaska in which you can yeah. just sort of like or you know, that is the trouble or I don't know. that is the trouble is that it, it, it is well what's a pragmatic reality of it. I mean, look, there's a small step thing in just saying, well, fundamentally, this is what America is, is an Anglo-Saxon cultural soul. Mm -hmm. You know, it's at least promoting that so people could, over generations, perhaps convert into it. I don't have a solution for America. I mean, that's very tough. That's tough. Um, I I think America will never be able to be uh, what it once was, right? The the cultural homogeny is completely lost forever. Europe might be able to be saved. A lot of people say that Europe is too far gone. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I haven't been to Europe in a very long time, and I've never lived there. I lived in London for a year. Um, London, I don't know. The problem with the British, in my mind, is that they have a culture. I don't know if this is because they they are depressed because of the, you know, at the, the fall of the British Empire, essentially. But they have a culture in Britain that almost revolves around alcohol. Yeah. There's this almost like, it's almost like it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, I've got to work five days a week so that on the weekend I can get like, you know, just fall over drunk mm. with my friends. And then I'm going to go to work again to make money so I can do that again on the weekend. And when I was living in England, I thought, this is not a, a healthy society. You can't have a society that is completely revolves around alcoholism. Mm. It's terrible. And I, a... I think that. Sorry. Huh? No, you, no, please. I was going to say there is a yes, there is a sort of binge drinking with the with the youth that that definitely goes on with the clubs and such. But in terms of the pub, 
that is an institution that's good to to do to go mm-hmm. to, and have a few drinks. Not to get it's blind. sort of like church. It's like a, you know, sure. it's just like the community. community yeah, yeah. Gathering. It's that's the folk bit of church. Of course, you've got a village, the outlay of it. You've got the Church of England, but you also have the pub. That's just, every pub's a parliament is a is a, uh, a term, right? It's where people debate and do. And that was important to America as well. It's a shame they got rid of a lot of the, the tavern feel of it. But I know what you mean. I made a video about this called the uh, the myth, the destructive or the, the the parasitic myth of English decline, right? Which talks about this idea that we got promoted. That was a recent thing. The empire itself was a thing that was pushed by the Tory party almost in the Jubilee age, like 1889, no one thought of it as an empire. If you ask the person on the street in London, they'd say that, what do you mean? Do you mean, they'd say, oh, what, the empire, do you, do you mean uh, Australia, Canada, New Zealand? They wouldn't have even said India. They didn't think of it that right. way. Or, or the colonies, right. what, you mean America, if you ask them that? It's only <laughs> right, later right. that was considered, right? So what happened is, because they pushed this idea, is that they put, it pushed into this teleology of, oh, we have all this empire, which was never part of England itself. And so when that was lost, people thought, oh, we've lost all this. But it was never part of English teleology to go out and build that. It happened by accident. Right, right. It just happened. But all these traders went out on contracts and that sort of thing. East India Company, Israeli, there's all prime minister's letters where they're saying, when can we be rid of these colonies? We don't want to administrate them anymore, yeah. right? So that goes into your point of this idea of it's actually not part of this English. It's been foisted upon the English mm-hmm. that they've been in decline, but there is no decline. Oh, yeah, and, there and is and a decline. Also, there, oh, sorry, I'll just add to that. There is a decline, yeah. but it's based upon the fakeness of the myth, right? So this. I, I agree with you, you know and I mean? actually, I and and I think that this may be the the crisis of identity that British people have, that English people have. And I don't mean all English people. There are many English people that live in the countryside that are, you know, proud of English heritage and, and proud of English culture, and they 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 love the the Britishness. But there are a lot of people, especially on you know, say the BBC, you know, Channel Four, these shows in entertainment and media, who just absolutely ridicule being British, and they're almost ashamed of being this white European you know, Anglo-Saxon person. And this is a, this is a sort of, sort of cultural norm now that uh, it's it, what we all do, what's trendy for, for the left anyway, is to say, oh, if you're white and you're European, you are, you, you are the product of an evil people, right? All of, all, of, all of whiteness, all of European heritage, it's all evil, evil, evil. And every person who is a black person or any kind of color other than like pure you know, European white, they're all super good and angelic and we're all evil and dark and horrible because of colonization and stuff like that. But the reality, of course, is completely different. You know, if you were to actually look at history in a balanced way, you'd see, well, many of the places in which, uh, you know, white Europeans colonized, they were engaged in like child sacrifice. They were engaged in all kinds of, uh, you know, nasty patriarchal stuff that feminists pretend that they hate today. But they look back at from other cultures and say, oh, that was fine. You know, they look, you know, they, they had maybe cannibalism. They had brutal war all the time, you know, in these sort of paleolithic technology, technological tribes all over the world. And then Europeans came around and they introduced Christianity and they introduced technological advancement and they introduced different forms of government. 
And they say, oh, no, 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 they wiped out these cultures and they were really cruel to the people. And they enslaved the inhabitants. And yet sometimes that sort of thing did happen. But there, but it's nuanced. It's not just evil and bad. There was a lot of benefit to colonization. You saved a lot of different people that would maybe have died otherwise because you know, of, of this kind of cultural conflict that already existed there in the first place. And uh, you know, who knows how much genocide existed in prehistorical societies, you know, they, they constantly, archaeologists will find mass graves and, and instances of genocide uh, in these other cultures, but they're completely dismissed as, oh, well, that their culture was was this good, pure, close to nature yeah. culture. You know, the, the myth of like they used every part of the buffalo. No, they didn't. Yeah, no, yeah. they didn't. They it's could not- <laughs> use every part of the buffalo, but they left a lot of it to rot most yeah. of the time. The, these cultures the were savage. It's the, the concept op- of the noble savage yeah. is exactly Rousseau. what it is. It's Rousseau. We, we romanticize yeah. the noble savage, and it's yeah. it's fine in in a, in a like literary sense and like a fictional sense, but in a historical sense, we cannot romanticize the noble savage. We have to say these primitive cultures, which were like white Europeans ten thousand years ago, and they didn't advance technologically, were benefited by the introduction of the technologies of Europe, and. I think that that the world should be grateful for colonization, not demonize it. But and yet you have this myth that exists, and I think a lot of British people fall for it, and and essentially say we are not worthy, but every other culture is. And I think that this is so detestable. I think this yeah, is so yeah. sad. And they also, of course, in England is such so different to the other European ones. But even all of it was a was a benefit. I mean, the the gener- the endless ten thousand years of slavery and genocide that all the other civilizations were committing on each other it's just come on like we ended slavery at the end of a musket we blew it out of the water at enormous cost that was only paid for about uh, in 2015 the debts from it were only just paid off for ending slavery and that didn't even include the royal navy's cost which was enormous and all the other idiot nations who said oh we we got slavery out of our law Bro, it means nothing unless you do it with a cannon and a ship. And that's what the Royal Navy did. It wouldn't have ended otherwise. And so did America. Well, and in America, so we, did had America. The same. we had the Civil that's War. That's what the Civil yeah. War is. That's ending it at the end of a musket, right? So yeah, there's this always idea this idea that, that, oh, well, for a long time, white, white uh, slave owners were sort of like the norm. Like every white person was a slave owner and they were all for slavery and all evil. There was always an opposition to slavery. There was always a... Okay, you want me to say something else that's one of the most controversial things I'll say in this video? This is pretty bad, actually. Go for it. People are going to hate this. I think that if you're a black American today, I'll say a number of controversial things. If you're a black American today, you should actually be grateful that slavery happened. Because even though your ancestors suffered, some of your ancestors suffered, um, their suffering is your benefit. Because if slavery never existed, you would have been born in Africa. And Africa is not a good place to be born for anyone today. So, well, okay, some places it's better than others. But in general, it's really not that good of a place to be born. So the fact that you're born in America is only due to the fact that slavery existed. And it's an ugly time, and there were bad people involved in slavery, obviously. And obviously some terrible things happened. But it's actually to your benefit that that happened. So you should be grateful for slavery. This sounds terrible, <laughs> but you, you really should. Yeah. And, and you know, from from a historical perspective, and I would also like to say that, um, yeah, it, it's slavery is a bad thing. I don't think it was the worst thing that ever happened to any human uh, his, historically. 
And the fact people say, oh, well, you have to pay reparations because bad things happen to people historically. Well, I do think reparations were paid in the in the sense of the death, the limbs lost, the paralyzation, the, the, the rampant illness that occurred because of the Civil War. So many people were you know, were killed and maimed and hurt because of the Civil War. You know, we're talking about white Can people you, who were against yeah. slavery. Yeah, can, and this was for this, the freedom of these, these slaves. And can you pay us reparations for the costs right. of removing it and stopping the slavers in Africa right. who were the slavers exactly. and selling them amongst each other? Pay us the enormous cost that was only paid in 2015. And the Royal yeah, Navy, you pay had, the Union you, you soldiers the enormous cost. Yeah, Absolutely. You had cultures in Africa that were enslaving their own people. And the European slavers kind of just went along with that tradition that already existed there. And this is the other really awful sort of cultural thing that I, uh, you know, thing that people are going to hate me for saying. But um, it makes sense to some degree that some white people initially would have been would have had a superiority, a sense of superiority to black Africans because. You, you, if you are a civilization that is as accomplished as white Europe was, Europeans were at the time, and you come upon, you know, I think it was in the 15th century that the Portuguese first encountered sub-Saharan Africans, and you live and you encounter a Paleolithic people who have never developed anything like the wheel. They, they haven't developed the wheel. They've developed no technology beyond, you know, what what Europeans, you know, experienced 10,000 years ago. You say, oh, this is a primitive people. And you do get the sense of superiority versus inferiority of the other group. And I don't, but the thing is, when I think of racism, I think of it as an irrational thought. Like if you were to go to a company and work, you know, I used to work as a graphic designer. And one of my clients was this, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, plastic surgeon. Plastic surgeon is this in Beverly Hills. This guy went to Beverly Hills High School. He ended up going to Harvard. He started, he opened his practice. And I was doing his graphic design. This was a black guy. It never occurred to me that that was weird. We live in America. Of course, there's in intelligent black people. Uh, you know, he's a decent guy. We became very good friends and everything like that. It, it, I didn't really even think about the fact that he was black much, except for occasionally he would mispronounce a word and I'd make fun of him. And then he'd go, black people can't pronounce some words, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so stuff like that, you know, yeah, yeah. stuff like that would indicate the, you know, the racial difference between us. But for the most part, he was culturally the same as me and whatever. To think that he is inferior because he is black would have been completely insane. It would have been totally irrational, irrational for me. But if you're a, a European and you're meeting a, a, a group of people who run around essentially like in loincloths and their language is clicking and, you know, they're, they're using Paleolithic weapons, you know, I, I think that's a completely different scenario. And it's probably rational for you to think, oh, you know, maybe I am more developed than this other person. And so I think slavery may have emerged to some degree from that. It's not an excuse, really, but more of an explanation. And I do think that we should be more sympathetic to people historically because the context that we have today is not the context that they had back then. You didn't have black plastic surgeons in the 15th century. You know yeah. I mean? So they well, didn't have that same context for understanding. I mean, look, at it always existed in every people on earth did it it was us that ended it that's the only way to think about this is that we that's ended absolutely it. that's the best you way all did it, it and we ended it and you're all still doing it 
You're still doing it right now in these places. And you did it if to people, us. The Barbary if states. If people really care about right? reparations, yeah. they should first try to stop all the other slavery that currently exists Pay the English. The world. Pay the English. That's what yeah, I want. Yeah. No, no, you're right. You're right. Sorry. No. Give us, no, no, give no, us I money. Agree with you. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's, yeah. it's, we, we, there is this bizarre idea, and I think of it as a kind of racism or culturalism or, or bigotry against uh, you know white people. And it's a bizarre thing that has happened to us. But we have a contingent of, of white Europeans who hate white Europeans. And they say we're the – and I think that it stems from this idea of being a good person by recognizing your own faults. It's like these are my own people and I'm willing to admit we're bad and therefore I'm not bad. I'm good. That's why people do this. And it's, bec it's become this trend that has uh, become ubiquitous in our, in our society and it's really harmful because we look at – now, many Americans and many Europeans, we look at being European or being an American as inherently evil. And that is the most bigoted thing I could possibly imagine, because being European does not make you inherently evil. That, to me, is sickening. And that's one of the reasons that I, I do this show, is to try to get people more comfortable with the idea of thinking that being white isn't bad. <laughs> and with the culture itself, it's it's really important to recognize that, because... If you go with these multicultural ideas, it was Jung, Carl Jung, who said that every civilization that's done this blows away like a gust of wits, like an anthill of sand and blows mm. away. And think about it. That's a great uh, metaphor for it. It's like a castle made of sand and it just blows Scott, away. Scott, I think it's worse wind. than this, though, because uh, it's not that we don't care enough about our culture to preserve it. It's that I think at least half of the culture... Uh, any kind of European culture is actively working toward the destruction of the culture. Yes, so you I have the wind that. blowing the sand away, and you have and you have people some of these people stabbing trying to back. kick the yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's true. That's I, horrible. No, but it's true because, and you see this is that they're willing to support any type of regional. Oh, Welsh nationalism's okay. Scottish nationalism's okay. Irish nationalism's okay. When it comes to English nation, they because yeah. it's a they see the potential, the power of it. Right. It's mm -hmm. and they, they there is this. It's the transhumanists. It's the transhumanists. It's the uh, it's the cosmopolitanness. This idea yeah. of I'm a citizen of nowhere. The nowhere people is that they see something that's a threat to them. The other ones aren't a threat to them. The other ones are good for them. Those minority mm -hmm. think it's good for us because we want to have this. You because if you destroy these regional, these powerful national cultures, it allows a certain elite to have total control because there's no va shared values where you can render support from other people because you need that right. don't you if you have a shared story you appeal to the context to tell us the story to get people to come to your side but if you have all these people that are divided they don't share the same story so you can't rally <laughs> against the enemy yeah. and i i also think that there is a kind of uh, ignorance about the value of european culture among europeans themselves uh, or, or, or say English people uh, about English culture. So, and I think it has to do with being on the inside, right? Like the, I'm, I'm so familiar with this. I can't see the value of it. It's, it's like when you live in a particular place and you move away and then you go, oh, you know what? Actually that place that I grew up was actually quite a nice idyllic place. Or you don't really respect your family and then you move away and you're like, actually my dad was a pretty good guy. You know, so this familiarity sometimes breeds contempt, right? This is, I think, an expression. <laughs> familiarity breeds contempt. And, and, and so, like, imagine that you and I decide to build the most beautiful 
architectural structure ever constructed, the most beautiful building, you know, this architectural design that is groundbreaking, one of the most uh, important architectural structures ever created in history. And you have people that maybe live inside this building. And maybe the inside of the building is not one of the most impressive architectural structures in the world. We've maybe made it utilitarian so that people can use it more easily, and it looks more or less like any other building. So people inside the building, they don't realize the cultural significance of this or the importance to humanity that we've created one of the most impressive architectural structures ever in history. And somebody says, I want to bulldoze this and create a different kind of structure that looks similar to other structures, but maybe a bit inferior. But the interior will essentially be the same, slightly different, but, you know, same quality. Um, to me, that's like replacing European culture with, you know, whatever African culture or Islamic culture or something like this. You know, a lot of people in Europe go, I don't see really the problem. We're replacing European culture with Islamic culture. It's just as good. It's like, okay, well, actually, you know, we've created one of the greatest cultures in the history of the world and you want to destroy it to bring in another culture. And these people would, uh, a lot of these people would want to murder every gay person. I don't know if that's a value that you have. You can do it. They, it's a more of a patriarchal structure. It's this idea that, you know, the patriarchy is evil. Well, in a lot of these Islamic countries, that is the standard, is, is the patriarchy. And, and it is somewhat misogynistic in some of these places. So if you want that brought to your country, okay. But they don't recognize the differences. They just have this sense of, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, the familiarity breeds contempt. Well, I've lived here my whole life. I don't see why it's special. But I, from the outside, can tell you why English culture is special. I, from the outside, can tell you why Swedish culture is success, uh, is, is uh, impressive and all this kind of thing. It is special. These cultures are special. German culture is special. These things need to be preserved in the same way that some, like, um, tribe in the, you know, Amazon forest, uh, Amazon jungles need to be pr preserved. European culture should be preserved. And the fact that people don't respect it or don't care about it, to me, is, is a tragedy. Well, when you're a fish in water, it's, you're swimming in the water. It's hard to see the water, right? Because it's invisible exactly. looking through it. And you yeah. do, I think what's happening now is people are realizing it because as it starts to disappear, as the puddle starts to dry up, that cultural people start getting rid of it. That's when you notice it. And there's a quick a Kipling quote where he says, oh, what do they know of England uh, who only England know, right? And there's certain, right. there's certain truth to that. But th that Cheston said in reply to that, uh, is that there's an opposite sense, right? And this goes to perspectival knowledge, is that you you get a sense of it propositionally uh, in ideas when you leave, but the people that have been in England all their life have it deeply, or if they say they're a peasant or they're not, they're not there's peasants anymore, but they're country people, rural people, they've got it deeply in their being. So Kip, uh, cosmopolitan, Kipling was a bit more cosmopolitan to begin with, but he ended up purely deeply English living in Essex. But he realized the same thing is that, well, yes, it's true to, that you see it from the outside uh, in ideas better, but having it in your being is really important as well. Even if you can't articulate it, you've deeply got it in your being. Um, but also, before we sort of uh, wrap this up, I do want to go into some other things about you yourself as well, because you studied English. You're an English major, right? And I talk yep. about on this channel a lot about what gives people vitality. So what drove you to do that? What was perhaps it could be a film. It could be anything that gives you or gave you vitality. What inspired you to start doing that? What what stories, anything versed throughout your studies in English lit uh, gives you a sense of vitality or, or even well, just you know, like or inspires you? Yeah. It's interesting that you asked that because, you know, when you when you asked me to do this show with you, you said, let's do something about masculinity in the modern era. 
And what is masculinity? I think that there's essentially two aspects to being a man. Uh, one is our, 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 or it's the two things that drive men, I would say, right? And one thing is attracting a mate, right? Getting a woman, being attractive to a woman, right? All that, everything that we are about being a, a, a masculine man, having duty, having strength, uh, uh, being a good man, these things, a lot of that is, you know, we're motivated by getting a woman. Another thing that motivates men is, I think, leaving some kind of a, excuse me, leaving some kind of a legacy, right? We want to leave a legacy. And for most men, that's having children, raising those children right, and then putting them out in the world. What, what does that do for, what does that do for humanity? That creates a better world. We are a better world if you raise great kids and you put them out in the world and they, you know, and, and they raise get great kids and, and so on and so forth. Um, but some men, some men, uh, they want to do something different. They want to go out in the world and they want to make a mark in a different way. Like look at somebody like Elon Musk who becomes a billionaire and this great, you know, this great man in this way. And he's trying to bring back free speech in America, which I think is entirely noble. Um, and with me, it's the same. I have this idea that, you know, I need to express myself in some way. And before I had my YouTube channel, my idea was to go to Hollywood and to write scripts and to make films that would kind of express similar messages to what I'm saying on my show now, on my Mr. Reagan uh, show on YouTube. But the Mr. Reagan show is obviously a much more direct uh, response to the yeah. politics of the day. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the filmmaking was more of sort of a, a, a more gentle cultural push. That was that idea. Now, I, I don't, in fact, it, it's, it's very satisfying to present an idea to the world and have that idea debated and discussed and to hear people's reactions to it. It's very, very, very satisfying. Uh, you know, as somebody who wants to change the world and make some kind of a mark and have some kind of legacy. But in some ways, I would have preferred to make films and for my career to have gone that way. Um, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, studying literature and learning about our heritage, learning about history was really about, you know, for me, literature is about history to some degree, right? You read a book that was written 100 years ago, even if it's a complete fiction, um, even if it's set in outer space or something like that, you know, set in a completely different world, you do get the sense of what somebody at that time is thinking. The author at the time has certain ideas about the world that they're expressing, and they're reacting to the society around them. And so reading literature, to me, is the best way of getting a good sense of history, of people in history. And what you find, what I found when I was reading a lot of these books, was that people today are very similar to people 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. Uh, we have all the same sort of like instincts and uh, we have all the same motivations. But what's different, I suppose, is that um, there, there is a, a lot few, uh, far fewer cultural boundaries now. It used to be that there was like some parameters within which we had to work as a society. And most of us, I think you, Scott, and, and I, sort of still work within certain cultural boundaries. But if you watch TikTok, it's obvious that a lot of people do not work within those cultural boundaries. But that we do have humanity. And actually, when I lived in England, I noticed that 
I think people all over the world are fundamentally the same. We again, we have the same instincts, we have the same motivations, um, and so you know, it, it's a good. It, that to me was the reason why I was studying literature. It was to sort of get a sense of humanity, not just geographically speaking, but historically speaking, get a sense of people's ideas. It's really an insight into the human mind. That's what I was doing. Because I do want to influence people, but I don't want to manipulate them for selfish reasons or, you know, to go against what I think is in their best interest. My whole, everything about what I do, my whole motivation really in my life is to try to improve people's quality of life and give them a better understanding of the world around them and themselves. And, you know, I may not be always perfect with what I say, but I try to be. That's my goal. And it is to improve the world. Everything is about improving the world and leaving this kind of lasting legacy that I think is uh, innate in men to try to try to do. I'm just sort of, I guess, following a natural instinct. Well, yeah, it's Faustian. I think that's very northern man. It's to go out and dragon slay. There are other cultures mm-hmm. that actually don't share that. I think that is particular to us to conquer space, to... I mean, space as in space, as in uh, that's why it all happened, right? It's this drive to action is very specific to our way of being. And and so that makes a lot of sense to me, that dragon slaying heroism. And you mentioned there the the stories. I think that's very true is that it's being from the inside that makes that so attractive. That's why I love the ballads. Also, because they are not written by one individual, they're written by almost the, the guys of the community. They have a they are written not for the purpose of swaying anyone or convincing anyone, yet they have the spirit of the people in them and have an evolutionary benefit anyway, right? So they affect mm-hmm. people's uh, implicitly. They're shared at the pub, the ballads of Robin Hood, for instance. So, or, and you would have looked at this in your degree. You would have looked at all this stuff. These ballads, though, so they capture, like you said, a history because no one was trying to do it. They capture from the inside. So the mythos, that's why mythos is so important. A myth isn't a myth. A myth is a, is a, almost an organism that's been adapted over time to the world. It's got the being of the place that it's from and it works. It works for the environment that it comes from. Just like we were talking about earlier in the conversation with a a propaganda story versus a, a, a story that is true to the truth of being on the ground. And that's what those myths are that you might not be able to find the original Robin Hood, but it's almost like a constituent thing brought together. That's true. Um, yeah. I don't know if historically there was this idea of, Oh, we've got to put a push against the uh, ideas of the day. I'm sure that there were artists and there were writers and there were storytellers who, who did try to do that to some degree, but I think maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like, you know, a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, the storytellers were trying to craft narratives that just entertained people and made no, people, that's true. Um, yeah. made people happy. And, and these, and in order to do that effectively, you do have to kind of acknowledge human behavior, acknowledge what human desires are, acknowledge motivations and intentions of people and express those things accurately in order to craft a story that seems to make sense to the people that you're talking to. And this is something we don't do do anymore because there's so much political propaganda, so much of a push, you know, in this direction or that with storytelling. And I think that people need to recognize that you just have to acknowledge it. You can't say things like, uh, obesity is healthy for you. It's just not going to work. Nobody's really going to believe you. I mean, people will go, yeah, you go, girl. 
but is anybody really going to believe it? No. And so it's not a compelling thing to say. And I think it distorts and destroys any kind of um, value that storytelling has when you just lie to people blatantly and it disrupts the culture and it, and it misinforms people and it drives people to, it ruins people's lives essentially sometimes, you know. Now you, you sort of coming up to the last uh, thing, but I wouldn't mind knowing this is that you're from Oregon, right? Is that Oregon, yeah. Oregon. So what do you, you live in LA now, which is kind of like a modernist hell, really a modernist hellhole. So how do you, what do you do? Maybe you can explain uh, what it's like going back to Oregon. I know you went back there on over the holidays, didn't you? Uh, do you live in a sort of modernist area in Oregon? What do you do to escape modernism? What do you do? Do you go out into, what do you do to, I know you go hiking, right? Uh, what are the things yeah. you do to sort of connect with, I don't know, the, the, the place that you're in outside of that sort of city dwelling? Just people are looking to do that now, which is, I know you well, just do I, will, I will almost certainly leave Los Angeles soon. Mm. Um, I haven't figured out exactly where I'm moving to or how I'm going to go there or what exactly I'm going to do, but um, I am almost for sure going to move out of L.A. Hawaii is a much more conducive place to be active than Los Angeles. Everybody thinks Los Angeles is a very active place, but I don't really think that it is. In Hawaii, you can re you can like hike up the these incredibly beautiful um, uh, ridges. I, I think they call them ridges. And you can go down to the valley and then you can go up to you know the top of these um, you know, the, the, these amazing, have these amazing views and it's a lot of work, but it, you really do feel sort of like, you, you know, you're kind of back in nature. I would love to do the same thing in Oregon, but I almost ever, only ever go back during the winter time. Uh, but yeah, you know, we, I go out, my family has a farm, I feed the horses. You do kind of feel normal again. Yeah. Uh, you do feel a normal again when you're back with normal people that are sort of sensible people and you're doing sort of normal things that like humanity has done for a thousand years, you know, thousands of years, like feed horses and go out and just walk through the woods and, you know, look at the river and, you know, start a fire in the fireplace and all that kind of stuff. To me, family is actually much more important than I think our modern society um, instills in us as a culture. I think family is much more important than, than, uh, than we allow it to be. And, but at the end of the day, I think having a good father uh, will, I think give anybody a fairly decent life for their entire life. If you have a good father as a man, um, you, for the rest of your life, you will have a sense of confidence because you'll know that the, that you come from somewhere or someone who you respect. And so if you want to be, you, you want to instill greatness in the world. Um, I think that you should try to be great yourself and then be a good father for your children. I think to me, that's the most critical thing that any man can, can do or any man can be. And I don't have kids of my own, so I'm breaking my own rule there. But uh, my brother has kids and he is a he is a very good father. And my father was good. And I think his father before him was good. So I'm very lucky in that sense. I can go for stretches and it does feel like I'm sort of like in a desert here in Los Angeles because it's physically a desert, but it's also a desert of morality and a desert of rationalism and a desert of of, of anything good, you know. And and so I can go for long stretches here because I have that sort of internal fortitude from from having a good childhood and having a good father and a good family. But I will escape soon, I think. Yeah, but it's true though. I think that that you get that being given to you and your upbringing, and it does. And obviously, it doesn't last forever. It can only protect you for so long. You can't, you know, you have to live a virtuous life. But yeah, it is a force that almost is given to you. But you mentioned I want I, I want to go a bit more into this because you're you, so you're rural. You, is that where you're from? You're, you're, you've always had a farm? 
in Oregon? You're not a city. No, guy. that's a newer thing. But so I grew up, I would say, in a kind of rural-ish suburb. So we had a very large yard. I grew up sort of climbing trees. Oregon's an interesting place because it's really forested almost everywhere. Like most places that you live, you can walk to a forest or some wooded area. And uh, and so, yeah, I spent a lot of time in my in, <laughs> in my elementary school in trees, literally in trees, like sitting in a tree, but <laughs> uh, like a fir tree, like a Douglas fir. And, uh, you know, and, and, and then when I was, I think I was 10 years old or 11, we moved to an even more rural area, uh, where there's farmland, like those literally, literally sheep across the street from me. And I would have friends with a farm and, you know, you go up to see the cattle and you go, and I rode horses and I rode dirt bikes. And, you know, that was a lot of my childhood is, is that kind of thing. Bicycling was, was a big deal. Like if you ever watched the movie, the Goonies, um, that was where I grew up essentially. I mean, it's, that's Astoria, which is a little bit, I'm from Salem. They're in Astoria, but it's looks fairly similar. And like, yeah, riding bicycles through the woods is just like very standard for me as a kid. So when I was a kid watching the Goonies, I just thought that was normal, you know, or, or like ET when he's riding through the woods in ET bicycling as a child in the woods was normal for me. I don't think I didn't realize at the time that wasn't normal for everybody. But yeah, that that was my childhood. So then later on, my parents, uh, you know, my dad essentially retired, semi retired, and he bought this farm. If you've ever seen the uh, Amazon Prime documentary show Clarkson Farm, that's essentially a documentary of my father's life. Right at the moment, right? Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. runs a farm now. <laughs> that's great. In, in his retirement, so that's so. Yeah. yeah, I get to feed the horses and 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 stuff like that now. It's quite a bit of fun when I go back. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that's something a lot of people will probably return to. I, I think with the with the, all the attack on food and the WF, a lot of people are looking to get a space of land to be self sustainable with their food, uh, and even with the routines of it, riding through forests, that sort of thing, like you were talking about. People, you miss that. It's not even just missing it; it's an important part of being to connect with the landscape. And it very much the American has made America his anglo-saxon soul i would say anyway so it's it's been crafted into and not every place is of course wild america but it has been and there's probably it sounds ideal ideal what you're talking about it's probably being crafted by american hands so the being american being is probably out there right you know thanks so much for coming on uh it's really good to talk to you uh, I think that was really yeah, good. Yeah, man. It was, I, I remember when I met you, we kind of clicked, yeah. you know, and, uh, and, and it, you know, cause we kind of have a similar sensibility about the world. And, uh, mm. I'm very, very happy to finally have done this. I know we've been talking about doing it for a long time.